Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's a good thing. Because according to Psalm 73 and verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see why John tries to reach for every possible metaphor to get you to think of the Spirit as like nothing else that can take over empower, embolden, sustain, provide. The Spirit gives life and power to His people. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Tonight I want to talk about living water. Our Lord Jesus uses lots of metaphors, especially in the Gospel of John. And there's powerful imagery, but, you know, we know that there's no such thing as a married bachelor, no such thing as a round square, and just doesn't seem right to talk about living water. And that's what makes this conversation in John 4 so understandable. There's a woman who's come to the well to fetch a pail of water. And Jesus, tired from his journey, is resting at the very same well. And so he looks at the woman and he says, give me a drink. Now, the request is unusual for all sorts of reasons, about Jews and Samaritans and men and women and how they talked in public. But Jesus is really setting up the scene to discuss not what he wants to receive, but what he wants to give. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Three chapters later, John 7, there's a feast. On the last day of the feast, Jesus gets up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There it is again, living water. It has to be a metaphor, of course. Jesus isn't talking about physical water that suddenly comes alive. He's talking about something that you take in, something that fills you up, something you can drink deeply of, something you need to sustain your life to give you energy and vitality. And John doesn't even make us guess as to what he's talking about. In John 7, in verse 39, he adds this note. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. Now there's some Old Testament background for this. In two places, Jeremiah and Zechariah, God calls himself the spring of living water. And when they prophesy about the future, they say, one day the river's going to flow to the east and to the west in the winter and the summer. You get the idea. One day everybody's going to have God's presence 24-7. And we know what that is. God's presence is God's spirit. 
But do you see how the language of metaphor works? The Spirit's not like water in lots of ways. But having the Spirit is like having water in some ways. It's life-giving. You can be full of it. You can drink from it. You can get strength and energy from it. And that's why he chose the imagery. It's not the only comparable image that John uses. In fact, he uses another one that might seem shocking at first in chapter 2. This is Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee, and it's a story only recorded in the Gospel of John. Now, that's the first clue that John is using the story for a reason. No, it's not John saying, let's add one more power story that you can add to your list of how powerful Jesus is. It's not to teach a moral lesson about all the actions of all the participants or to answer all of our questions about what to eat and drink. It's not why it's there. Like any parable, it's being used to make a point, of being used by John to make a crucial point about the gospel of John. And in this story, People are at a wedding, and as is typical in lots of weddings all over the world, the wine's flowing. But they run out. Enter Jesus, stage right. John says that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. He even tells us how much. He says each jar held 20 to 30 gallons. That's enough to fill about three-fourths of your bathtub uh, in, each, in each jar. So multiply eight by 30. You've got 240 gallons. That's over 900 liters, 960 quarts. But we're supposed to think not of tubs, but of cups. So if we're talking about drinking water, 240 gallons is 3,840 cups. That's a lot of water. And the first thing John wants you to know is that we're talking about abundance. Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars, and John says they filled them to the brim. So the second thing that John wants you to know is that we're talking about fullness. No room left for anything else. You know the story. The master of the feast is given a taste, and as it turns out, Jesus has changed the water into wine. Now, I've heard lots of sermons on this, but very few seem to realize that that's really not the point of the story. It's not about wine. The master's reaction is very telling. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, from this reaction, I see two more things that John wants us to know. One is that Jesus has changed the water into something good. In fact, it's the best. We're talking about good and best. Let's put those four things together. Abundance, fullness, goodness, and best. But what's the last thing? There's a reason people bring out the poor wine when the people have drunk freely. Because wine can affect you. It can affect your taste buds. But that's not all that it affects. It has the potential to change your mood. It can affect how you think, how you act, how you look. It can become so powerful that too much of it can master you. So the fourth thing that I see is overwhelming power. 
Now, we already know from John 4 and John 7 that the stories about water coming alive are stories about the Spirit. Now, look again at these five things in this text. What does God provide that is abundant, full, good, best, and overwhelmingly powerful? A power that changes and overwhelms. How are we supposed to think about what God provides? What God provides is his spirit. And it is abundant and full and good and best. And we get it when we go down into the gallons of water. Paul actually makes this connection in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine because in that is debauchery. What he's saying is filling yourself up with wine can lead to a change of behavior. That's not what God has in mind. But instead, says Paul, be filled with the spirit. That comparison is apt. Sin is a master. It isn't just an infection. It's a disease. In Romans 8, we're told whatever we yield our bodies to is our master. So don't yield your bodies to sin. Instead, yield them to God's spirit. Why? Well, we know why. Because the spirit represents abundance and fullness. It's, God, it's God's good and best gift. And the spirit has overwhelming power to change how we think, how we act, and on the day of Jesus, even how we look, because when we see him, we shall be like him. To paraphrase Paul, don't look to wine to change your life. Instead, be fully affected by the Spirit. We've already had a lesson in this series about power. We know the Spirit works in us in force, but I wanted to highlight a corollary point. He empowers us. I want to use a very simple illustration. It's not original with me. Even the person I'm borrowing it from says it's embarrassingly silly. Katie only rolled her eyes twice before she gave me permission to do it. This is a work glove. It's made to do work. It's a good glove. It's well put together. It's designed to work. If I put that work glove down here and I say to that work glove, pick up that book. It can't do it. Maybe the work glove needs some motivation. Come on, work glove. You can do it. It won't work. Maybe it needs uh, some uh, fellowship. Uh, here, let's hang out with some other gloves. How about that? It still won't work. You know that the only way this thing that was designed to work will work is if a living hand works its way inside into every part of it to make it work. This is Paul's illustration for what it means to say, we no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In his earthly ministry, Jesus empowered his disciples. And he, there's all this power language in Luke, for example. He gave him power over, you know, demons and curing diseases and all of that. But it wasn't just that. 
You remember as he was about to uh, head to, to die, he prayed that God would protect them by the power of your name. Paul says to the Ephesian church, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Just a few verses later, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. In 2 Timothy 1 in verse 7, Paul says the spirit gave us, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I can face temptation because the Spirit empowers me. Do you know what Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus and his baptism? You remember that the heavens open and the Spirit comes down and sets on him like a dove. The next verse, the Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted. Luke says that he entered that desert full of the Spirit. And after that story, Luke says he returned from there in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit guided him and empowered him to face his temptations. We don't want temptations. And there's certainly something bad about temptations. James says God doesn't tempt anyone. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation because we're weak, because we fail. But testing is not the same thing as tempting. And God is with us and aware of everything we face. And that's why he could give us assurance that no temptation will come your way other than what's common to humanity. And God is faithful. And with every temptation will provide a way of escape. The spirit gives us power and presence so you and I can face temptation. The same spirit that led and empowered Jesus in the desert now lives in you. I can live a life pleasing to God because the spirit empowers me. There's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We know that. But we are under the law of the spirit of life, says Paul in Romans 8. And we were saved so the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled Romans 8, 4, in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The first time I read this, I thought he was talking about me walking like I walk in any other day, but the way that God would want me to walk. That is, we who choose to do right things that the spirit tells me I should do. What if we read it differently? What if we read it as we who walk according to the spirit refers to the power and energy and ability to walk? That is, we used to do our daily life by the power and energy of our own will. Our own blood, sweat and tears, our own self-reliance. But now. We are led by, energized by, controlled by God's spirit. It's his power at work within us that empowers us to do right. That seems right. 
Because just a few verses later, Paul shifts his language from by the Spirit to in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells in you, says Paul. And as John says it over in 1 John, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. If that's all I had to go on, we might say, well, there's an example. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Just try harder. But he's not finished. And by this we know, says John, that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. The spirit empowers right living. And the spirit of Christ is the spirit that pleases God. Christ is the righteous one. And we're in him. And he's in us. And how do we know that? Because of the spirit that he's given us. I can see good in every situation because the spirit empowers me. You remember that passage where Paul says, whatever's true, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good report, think about these things. That's in a context. And the verse before it and the verse after it in Philippians 4 says the God of peace will keep your minds and hearts where they need to be because the God of peace will be with you. And just four verses later, Paul says, do you get the point I'm making? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. By his power, I can see the whole world differently. I can even see my circumstances differently through a spirit lens. There's a secret to being content, Paul says, and that is no matter what happens in my life, I can choose to see this moment as an opportunity for God to show his glory because the God of peace is with me. When I go through difficult times, I can trust that God will use even this to his glory because the spirit empowers me. Romans 8, Paul says, all things, all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. He says in all things, God works to bring about good to those who love him. But even that's in a context. Just a few verses earlier. He says, the spirit helps in our weaknesses. When we don't know what to pray for, the spirit speaks for us. When we don't know how to express our heart, we don't even know if we can trust our heart. The spirit searches our heart and intercedes for us. There's a side note in 1 John, beautiful passage. that says, even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. That means that your situation you're in right now, no matter how it looks to others, is a God-filled situation. A place where the works of God can be displayed, believe it or not. Finally, I don't have to rely on my own strength because God is with me and the Spirit empowers me. 
In Psalm 20 and verse 7, the psalmist says, Some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I'm trying to think of a corollary for us today. Some trust in their retirement account. Some trust in the word of their boss. Some trust in their own ingenuity. Some trust in whatever they've got in the safe behind them. But we trust in the Lord our God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, says Proverbs, but in all your ways submit to him. And he'll make your paths straight. There's a passage in Psalm 139 that's usually used to talk about his omnipresence. You know that verse that says, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the highest heavens, you're there. If I go to the lowest depths, you're there. And it's supposed to tell you that God's everywhere. But did you know that the psalmist tells you more than that? It tells you what the spirit is doing for you there. Psalm 139 and verse 10. Wherever I go, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God promises so. Hear God speak in Isaiah 41 and verse 10 to you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's odd that I'm using my left hand to make this point. And that's a good thing. Because according to Psalm 73 and verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see why John tries to reach for every possible metaphor to get you to think of the Spirit as like nothing else that can take over, empower, embolden, sustain, provide? The Spirit gives life and power to his people. I'm ending a little early, but I want to leave you with Paul's prayer for the Roman church in Romans 15 and verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.